Preparing for and celebrating the Christmas season can be for many people a time of great joy, a time of uh, sweet experiences, sweet memories, uh, sweet seeing one another uh, as families get together. It's so nice to see some families getting reunited and, and being here this morning. But also Christmas for others can be a time of difficulty, of pain, of numbness, particularly when the joy that we communicate and sing about seems to be at such an odd relationship with our present circumstances. For people who are going through times of darkness, times of hopelessness, times of difficulty, the Christmas season can just seem like, oh yeah, it's just something we go through, but it feels so disconnected from reality. In the season of Advent, we are looking at psalms that refer explicitly to the covenant that God made with David and the promises God made him to establish his throne forever. And uh, last week we looked at Psalm 2, and this morning we are looking at Psalm 89. Last week we looked at Psalm 2, and we saw how that psalm prepares us to expect opposition to God's King, and it challenged all humanity not to oppose this King, but to find refuge in God's King. Those who won't find refuge in God's King ultimately in Christ, will perish in their way. That was the warning that the psalm uh, gave us last week. But those who find refuge in God's King will be established. They will be blessed. That was Psalm 2. Today we're looking at Psalm 89. Psalm 89 brings a very different facet, a very different side to the story of God and his covenant with David. If in Psalm 2 there was opposition against God's king, yet triumph, in Psalm 89 we see the reality of devastation and darkness. How do we make sense of life and of our faith when the covenant God promised and made with David seems to be utterly disregarded by God. Psalm 89 does not hide or gloss over the painful side of reality even under God's covenant promises. So this morning, we want to look at Psalm 89 and the theme of living by faith in dark times. Would you open God's Word? To Psalm 89, I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to the end, 52 verses. So join me in this reading of God's Word, Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, 
I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A great God to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging, the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, 
I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to seize and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long? O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you soar to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of this word? Father, you have revealed your ways to us. And I ask that you would help me preach this word. And I ask that you would help us hear it so that our hearts may be established and rooted in you. In your word, in your covenant, despite what our present realities hit us with. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. The question that we have from this passage is how should we walk by faith when our reality seems to be so disjointed from God's promises of the covenant? That's a burden of the psalm. How should we live and walk by faith when our present, when our reality seems to be so disjointed from God's promises of the covenant. Have you been there? Do you know what that looks like and that, what that feels like? 
Some of you are. Some of you have been. And others will be. This psalm teaches us, and the burden that this psalm has for us is to hold on to God's character even when the present is opposite of his promises. Let me say that again. Hold on to God's character even when the present is opposite of his promises. The psalm is uh, divided up in two major sections. The first half of this psalm, or the first part of the psalm, focuses on God's past promises to David. This first half is where we all want to live in. This first half is where we want to spend our lives in. And the second part of the psalm des- describes the present realities of the author of the psalm. He's not David. It's one of the descendants. As we look at these two parts, there are three surprises. There are three surprises or three lessons that we see as these two major parts are, are brought together in this one psalm. So the surprises, the three surprises will be the three lessons, the three points of the sermon this morning. The first one is, embrace the discrepancy between God's promises and our present. Embrace the discrepancy between God's promises and our present. Verses 1 through 37 is a theology about God. Verse 38 to 51 is a present reality with God. And these two sections seem to be at such odds with each other. Uh, The tension between these two halves are so big that some Bible teachers even suggest that these two parts could not be written by the same author as part of the same poem. They just don't have a category of bringing these these two parts together in one psalm by one author. The big surprise of this psalm is how can these two parts come out of the same mouth? That's a surprise. That's a big surprise. What holds these two parts together is that this psalm begins and ends with praise to God. Do you see it in verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 52? It starts with, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. And even after this The dark side of the psalm, the closing words of the psalmist in verse 52 are are a big clue that these two halves belong together. Because 52, verse 52 says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. 
How can you say, blessed be the Lord forever, when the theology about God and your present experiences with God seem to be at such odds? Do you ever struggle with this discrepancy between the theology about God and your current life, current struggles? This psalm is written for people who struggle with this discrepancy, who find themselves uh, struggling to see how these two pieces can be put together. What do you do when present circumstances are the opposite of what God promised in the past? How can you say, blessed be the Lord forever? Well, this psalm will teach us that God's character is not and should not be defined by our present circumstances. This psalm teaches us that God's character should not be defined by our present circumstances. You and I are often inclined to define reality by our own experiences. We like to define everything in this world by what we experience. We like to define love by what we experience. We like to define justice by what we experience. We like to define the world in our worldview through the filter of our experiences. There's something understandable about that. At the same time, in Western society and civilization, where we have enthroned the I, the me, now, the very definition of what is real, what is actual and factual, is filtered through the base of personal experience. And this psalm is wanting to lead us to question whether that way of defining reality is appropriate particularly when we think about who God is. This psalm will actually lead us and give us a pattern, an example of how to define the character of God and not to be enslaved in that definition by our personal experience. We, we feel the, the pressure to feel, say, my experience with God has been in this way, so I'm evaluating this, I'm evaluating Him, based on this. People say, I like to think about God this way. Or to me, God is this. Well, those phrases, when you hear people introduce their definition of God with, I like to think about God this way, or to me, God is... Whenever you, they start with a preface, you can be sure that what's going on is a definition of God through the filter of their personal experiences and preferences. When it comes to God, we must see who God is based on what He has done and revealed in the past. His revelation of, his, of Himself in the past and His actions in the past are the defining elements of God's character. Why? 
Because our present, our present time, our present circumstances are still an unfolding of the story that God has with us. The story is not yet over. So just going on by our current moment of the present is not a good or a sufficient way of defining God's character and His purposes. So, child of God, if you struggle with deep difficulties or hard circumstances or have a hard time reconciling your past or your present painful experiences with what the Bible says about God, may I encourage you to do this. Don't define God's character by your present or by your experiences. Let God's truth about Himself, let God's truth about His past revelation of Himself be the starting point of your assessment of God's character. Because God's character is not defined by our dark times. So, the first surprise and the first lesson of this psalm is embrace the discrepancy between God's promises and our present. That discrepancy, embracing that discrepancy means don't define God's character by your present and by your experiences. And Psalm 89 is a testimony of how to live by faith in dark times. Surprise number two and lesson number two, gaze on God's character and promises in spite of the present. Gaze on God's character and promises in spite of the present. Verses 3 to 37, after the psalmist declares that he will praise the Lord forever, that he will sing of God's steadfast love forever, that he would teach of his faithfulness to all generations. After he does that in the first two verses, starting with, with verse 3 all the way to verse 37, he is rehearsing what God has said and what God has done in the past. And this rehearsing of God's truth, of who he is and what he has done, this rehearsing has four moves. Uh, now, we will not go in, in great detail in, through all of these moves. So much of it has been uh, told in the Davidic covenant that we have gone through and covered over the last few weeks. But let's go through these moves fairly quickly to see how the psalmist is rehearsing the truth about God as he revealed himself. Move number one. God's initial plans with David. Verse 3, the psalmist reminds God what he has said. He starts in verse 3 with these words, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. This shows us that the psalmist is starting thinking about the challenge of his, God's promises and his present by starting with, God, this is what you've said. A binding promise in which God made vows and took an oath towards David. Uh, this language of making an oath to solidify the promises shows the permanency of what God said to David. God took the initiative of this covenant. And God, when he promised, he took an oath. He made these promises permanent. Move number two. 
The psalmist moves to praise God for his wonders even prior to David. Starting with verse 5, the psalmist begins talking about the wonders of God even before he made the covenant with David. The psalmist calls the heavens to praise God in verse 5 because they have actually witnessed what God has done even before David was alive to see God's faithfulness. Even before the psalmist was alive to see the acts of God, the psalmist says, heavens, y'all have been around when I wasn't. You've, you've been around when God has acted in great and mighty ways. Would you praise him? That's, that's what this move is. The psalmist wants to rehash the greatness of the one who had made these promises. It's one thing to rehearse the greatness of the promises, it's another to rehearse the greatness of the one who makes the promises. And before the psalmist goes to rehearse the promises made to David, the psalmist wants to, to rehearse the greatness of the one who made the promises. And he starts with activities and acts that God has done even prior to David. So in this second move, the psalmist is asking, who can compare with this great God? Verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Do you see how the psalmist is just praising the character of God? The greatness of God. And he gives two examples of that greatness. So it's not just theology. It's like, hey, these things are rooted in history. Two examples, verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And you may wonder, when did this happen? One, in, in prior to David, just think of the, the power of God to govern the Red Sea and control it and make a wave, a way through it. But for us who are reading this 2,000 years later, or more than 3,000 years later, we know that a physical human being came on this earth. One day he was in a boat, sleeping. His disciples were around him. A big storm came on them. His disciples were, were so, so afraid that they, they said to him, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus woke up from his sleep. He spoke a few words, the raging sea, be still. And the waves, the sea, calmed down. And the disciples rightly said, who is this? That even the waves and the winds listen to him, obey him. We have here the, the character of God in this psalm. And it's not just pie in the sky. It's rooted in history. God has given us promises. 
And then the second example that these promises have actually been proven, factual, that the psalmist gives is about Rahab in verse 10. We read, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. Rahab is probably, most commentators agree, is a nickname for Egypt. You crushed Egypt like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The way God brought the ten plagues against the oppressors of God's people and the way God brought them out of the bondage is a major salvation event in the Old Testament. And the psalmist simply says, God, who is like you? The heavens were witnesses when you have done that. This is who you are. These examples are just are just a reminder that the theology of God is proven by the history of God in the past. In other words, the one who, who has made great promises to David is the mighty God whose strength cannot be compared with anyone else. And besides God's mighty strength and, and power, the psalmist also speaks of the character of God's rule. Not only is he mighty, Look at verse 14. He's also righteous and just. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Oh, friends, having a God who is merely supremely mighty is not necessarily good news. Because extreme power in a being who is unjust or crooked is incredibly bad news for all the earth. But what the psalmist is telling us here about the character of God is not only that he has the supreme strength and power like no one else, but also that his, his throne is surrounded with justice, with righteousness, with steadfast love and faithfulness. This combo is impeccable. This is the, the combo of virtues. This is a combo of characteristics. This is a combo of, of elements of a, of a profile of a, of a mighty God who is mighty and good, powerful and just, supreme in all his abilities and supreme in all his loves. Oh, friends, this is a character of God that the psalmist is painting before us. In light of these characteristics about God, the psalmist makes a third move about the blessedness of God's people. The people who follow this kind of God, the psalmist says, they are blessed. Look at verses 15 and 16. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. The blessed people are those who know, who walk, and who exalt in the name of the Lord. In the, in the name of the, of the God who is this way, who, who's, who's the way that the psalm had just painted for us. What a sweet way to describe God's people. Why do they respond in this way of knowing the festal shout, walking, and, and who know and to exalt the name of God all the day? 
Why do they respond this way? Well, because in verse 16, they are exalted in God's righteousness, not theirs. They're not exalted in their righteousness. They're exalted in God's righteousness. In verse 17, they know that the glory of their strength is not in themselves, but in the Lord. They don't show off their talents. They show off their God who gave them the strength and the talents. In verse 18, they know that their shield and their king belongs to the Lord. In other words, the people are confident that the human king who leads them does not belong to them, but to the Lord. The human king who is over them is not self-appointed, and he's not even appointed by the people in like a democratic way. It's appointed by the Lord. It's his king. He has appointed him. He has chosen him. So they exalt in God's name all the day long because their righteousness is his righteousness, because their shield is his shield, because their strength belongs to the Lord and their king belongs to the Lord as well. Now, after describing God's initiative with David and God's greatness in actions prior to David and the blessedness of the people of God who walk in the ways of this God, the psalmist makes the last move in this first half of the psalm. And the last move is the longest, verses 19 to 37. The psalmist repeats almost word for word with some additions and some different emphases God's promises to David. Finally, the psalmist gets to say, God, this is what you said to David. And it's a long summary. We will not go through all of it because we have covered the Davidic covenant back a few weeks ago in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What is highlighted in the summary in verses 19 through 37 is the promise or the, 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 the facet that this covenant with David was God's steadfast love and faithfulness. The fact that these promises will last forever because the very covenant with David is a display of, motivated by, and protected by God's steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, the psalmist wants us to see that God's covenant with David was actually an expression of his love. The very fact that God initiated the covenant and the terms he gave for the covenant are all expressions of God's love. Now, why would God bind himself with an oath and make such great promises? The simple answer is because of his love. Because of his love. It was God's love that stirred God's heart to enter into such a covenant with David. And it, the permanency of the covenant with David is rooted in the permanency of the character of God and his love. The forever of this covenant is rooted in the forever of God's love. You see how these promises were founded in God's faithfulness and God's love? That's what the psalmist wants to highlight as this covenant is rehearsed, is re reminded, brought back to us 
In other words, it's not merely the terms of the covenant, but the motivation of this covenant that, that actually are the highlight for us and for the psalmist. It's amazing that this psalm has such a vast and detailed knowledge of the covenant God made with David. Would you have been able to summarize the covenant with David in this way? I mean, if we, if we just had a little test, you know, pull out your bulletin on the blank pages reserved for notes. Let's not take notes from the sermon. Let's just see how much knowledge you have of God's covenant with David. Write as much and everything and anything you know about what God promised to David. Would you have been able to write it? The psalmist knew all these details. The psalmist knew almost word for word. In other words, as the psalmist is thinking about the promise of God, he knows them. He has meditated on them. Let this long section encourage you to immerse yourself into God's word so when troubled times come, you will not be like a rudderless ship on the sea that you will be able to go in your mind and heart to God's past actions and past promises and to place to the places that describe the character of God. Don't wait for a crisis to come to make you open your Bible and hunger for God. Do so now. Get time with God. Learn from Him Learn with him of his past promises and actions. Let your heart be soaked in his past revelation. Friends, it's hard for us to trust in God's character if you don't keep his word in front of you. So you can be reminded of what God said and done. Well, all these great lessons about God's past actions and promises are wonderful. The remainder of the psalm makes a major shift. And the shift starts with the words, but now. And this brings us to the last surprise, the last third lesson of the sermon this morning. Bring your present experiences and your questions to God. Bring your present experiences and questions to God. But now, as a psalmist summarizes his present circumstances, notice what he does. Notice how he begins in verse 38 with describing a summary of, uh, of what he has seen and experienced. There's 14 sentences that all have the same subject. God. Just listen. But you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant. You have defiled his crown. You have breached. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. You have exalted his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back his sword 
You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease. You cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. And you're like, yeah, I, I can see myself saying, God, you, you. Because in our present circumstances, it's easy to just turn back to God and say, Lord, you, you have, you have done this. The, the historical circumstances are likely the deportation of the king of Judah to Babylon. The events described here are likely the exile, which caused the Davidic dynasty to break. So there was no more king on the Davidic throne, not one chosen by God. There was no more throne to speak of. And the psalmist says, that the cause of, of all this calamity is not the Babylonians. It's not the enemies who are bringing about all this devastation. The psalmist says, you, God, you have brought it. Part of this is understandable because God said that he would act this way if the king turns against God's ways. God said in the covenant that he will discipline them with the rod of men. The psalmist agrees that all this devastation brought against the people of God and their king is the doing of God. And the lesson for us here is to see that the psalmist is not hiding his impressions of the present. He is bringing those impressions of the present, that reality, to God. He has no trouble saying, God, you have done this. And the reality is, it was true. It was true. Friends, bringing your calamities, bringing your troubles to God and acknowledging Him even in the midst of them is a good move. God is not upset when you confess to Him, Lord, you have brought these dark times upon us. You have brought this dark, tragic event upon our lives. It's not wrong to turn that to God. And then it's not wrong to ask questions. The psalmist is asking questions. How long, O Lord? Look at verse 46. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Now, by asking these questions, there is actually an implicit hope that the psalmist is holding on to. The whole implicit hope is that a time will come when God will show his favor towards his people once again. By framing it as how long will you hide, there's an explicit or an implicit expectation that God has not gone completely from their lives. Yes, the impression is that God is, is hidden away from them at this time. There, there's the, the understanding that perhaps this is the, the reality or the outflow of the, of the divine wrath. God's wrath, in this case, against the king. They were the recipients of the curses that God warned about. For us, when we experience tragic events, difficulties, pain that we cannot exp 
explain or get rid of. We can just remember, God said these are the realities under the curse of sin of all humanity, of all creation. Like, Lord, you said it would be this way, but how long? How long will it be this way? How long will you be far from us? Oh, friends, this question of asking it this way, Lord, how long will you hide your face away, is, is the cry of lament. It's not the pushing away of God in bitterness, but the trustful longing after God in the midst of tragic events that are reminded of the decree of the curse that God decreed in the Garden of Eden. How long, O oh Lord, is a cry of the suffering people of God who hold out hope that one day, one day this God will look again in favor towards us. Friends, hoping God can manifest itself in our lives when dark times happen. Hoping God can manifest in our lives by asking questions like this. How long, O oh Lord? Actually, the cry of faith for those who look to God in their distress is this question. This is not the question of faithlessness. This is a question of faith in the midst of dark times. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide? And then the second question, the second question of lament, of faith-inspired lament, is, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? It's understandable how in such a devastating crisis, a psalmist described God's steadfast love of old as presented and manifested in old times in the past as being far away. It's hard for us to see such devastating experiences and feel God's love close to us in such moments, and that is okay. It is okay for us to cry out to the Lord, Lord, your steadfast love of old, where is it now in my life? Yet even this question was the cry of a heart that trusted in the character of God's love. How do we know that? How do we know that these two questions, how long and where, are actually stirred up by a trustful confidence in God? Because both questions are answered or are followed up with a request, remember. Both times, in verse 47, remember how short my time is. It's as if the psalmist is saying in his distress, Lord, I cannot control the situation. No one can on this earth. It's too bleak. It's too, it's too far gone. But, but Lord, my life is in your hands. Remember how short my time is. It's as if the psalmist is saying, Lord, show your faithfulness to me once again before I depart from this world. Show it to me again. It's, it's a cry of the, of the one who still hopes in the character of God. And then the second remember is verse 50 and 51. 
Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which, your, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. By saying to the Lord, remember, by asking him twice, it really is an act of trusting that God can do something about it. He's the only one who can do something about it. So this psalm is teaching us how to lament with real impressions, with bringing those real present realities to God and not being afraid to say, God, you did this. And yet it's not the, you did it, I can't believe it, I want to have nothing to do with you, I, I'm, I'm out of the picture, you're out of my picture, um, how about we just agree to disagree and move on our different ways. That is not the attitude of saying, you brought this. It's rather the attitude, Lord, you brought this, and you alone are the one who can do something about it. So remember. Remember me. Remember my affliction. Remember your promises. And then this psalm ends... in a very surprising way. After lamenting, after bringing our real, hard, painful, tragic experiences to God in this kind of faith-inspired lament, this psalm ends with the words, Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. This is so, such a remarkable closing in light of such a difficult and tragic present experience. At the time the psalm was written, it seemed such a dark and hopeless picture for a whole nation, for a dynasty to be cut off, for the very covenant that God promised to seem to have been broken. All present facts indicated to the reality that the covenant was broken, the dynasty was gone. God's promises were just a pie in the sky. Just good theology, good for nothing for the present. And then the psalmist says, no, it's not pie in the sky. This is not good theology for no good use for the present. It's a theology that began this psalm that helps this psalmist close this lament with the words, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is, this is a cry of the psalmist in his lament, casting his confidence on the character of God because his character is forever the same. Amen. Amen. The psalmist may not have realized all the details of how God was working and God, how God could work in this dark picture. I mean, put yourself in the psalmist's shoes. 
there's, there's, just, there's no way you can explain how both of these two sides can be true at the same time. This dark picture was, in, in the psalmist's perspective, actually God's doing. And the psalmist, yeah, I don't know what was going on in his mind. Looking forward to asking him when I see him in heaven. But I know what was going on in God's mind as God's Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to write this psalm in this way. Because through this psalm, God was foreshadowing what God was planning to do in the life of another and the ultimate anointed king. Centuries later, God sent his son to a broken Davidic dynasty with no Davidic king on the throne. God would send his eternally begotten son to take on human flesh, to be conceived in a virgin's womb who was from the family of David so that he would fulfill the physical requirements of the house of David, so that he would fulfill the, all the, that God had asked of the Davidic kings to do, but they failed. He lived it in perfect obedience to God, he lived it until the age of 33. And at the young age of 33, he experienced the wrath of God. Full scale against his anointed king. His crown was exchanged for a crown of thorns. All his enemies rejoiced. Even the neighbors on the cross scorned him. His splendor ceased. His days were cut short in his youth. God covered him with shame. And he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God did all this. To his anointed king to show us his steadfast love, to show us his faithfulness. So when the psalmist asked in his lament, how long will your wrath burn like fire? The answer is, until the ultimate Davidic king would come to take on human flesh. And as he was hanging on the cross to take on him the full wrath of God and then for him to cry out, it is finished. How long Oh, Lord. Even in the darkest of times, God remains faithful to the covenant, showing his steadfast love for his people. So, by faith in the character of God, this psalm ends with the words, 
Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, hold on to God's character even when the present is opposite of his promises. And if you're here today and you do not know the, the character of God, if you're not in a relationship with this God who is faithful and whose steadfast love endures forever, come to him today. Repent of your sins. Trust in the king that God has sent for you and for me and for all those who would repent and trust in him for salvation. In the moment, embrace the discrepancy between God's promises and our present. But gaze on the character and promises of God in spite of the present and bring your experiences and your questions to God. Bring your life to him. He will not turn you away. Doing so, we will experience blessing, the blessing of the blessed God. William Cowper, Puritan hymn writer, struggled deeply with depression in his life, so deeply that he had attempted to take his life several times unsuccessfully. After the fifth unsuccessful attempt, he wrote the words of this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Father, give us the eyes to see, give us the ears to hear, and give us the faith we need to see your character even in the darkest of times. Help us to see your faithfulness and your steadfast love in sending your only Son to be our King to be the anointed king that you have decreed and installed over all the earth. Give us the faith to see him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.